Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Yuri Engstrom, who is a co-founder and general partner at YesVC, an early-stage venture capital firm based in San Francisco. They invest in pre-seed and seed stage companies set in motion by social movements. Yuri's also an entrepreneur who sold two companies, one to Google, one to Groupon. He has a ton of experience on both sides of the table as an investor and as an entrepreneur, and he shares those insights in this episode. As always, the show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Hawk Media, a full-service outsourced CMO based in Santa Monica, California, providing guidance, planning, and execution to grow brands of all sizes, industries, and business models. Hawk Media is recognized by Inc. as one of the fastest-growing marketing consultancies, and their collaborative process, a la carte offering, and month-to-month Fee structure gives clients the flexibility they need to boost digital revenues and marketing ROI. Hawk Media, the company, has serviced over 1,500 brands of all sizes, ranging from startups like Tomorrow Melon, SIO Beauty, and Bottle Keeper to household names like Red Bull, Verizon Wireless, and Alibaba. And also, I had the founder and CEO of Hawk Media, Eric Huberman, on the podcast in episode number 23, if you want to take a listen. And to get a free consultation, head on over to hawkmedia.com and be sure to mention Just Go Grind. Without further ado, here is Yuri Engstrom, co-founder and general partner at YesVC. Yuri, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. I have so many questions because your background involves a number of startups, a number of roles in product development, product management, as well as YesVC. But to start with, because you're currently uh, at YesVC as well, I'm curious as to how you decided that you wanted to launch YesVC in the first place, Yuri. Entrepreneurs got an entrepreneur. And I had been working at True Ventures, which is another awesome early stage fund for the last uh, almost four years, and felt like it was time to strike out on my own. Um, that's not to say I'm without partners. I'm, uh, I work with Katarina Fake, who is my life partner and so this is is you could say a family effort um (laughs) and i also really wanted to uh kind of i guess you could say build a legacy a little bit yeah you know i'm 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 turning 43 and in three weeks and so you know thinking about you know what i want to do um now that i'm grown up (laughs) and i think this is a part of that you know it's it's building something that could become an institution and possibly live on you know, even, you know, when it's time for me to, you know, finally step back. So this, you know, looked to me like the most impactful way that I could spend my next 20 years. With that, I know you and Katarina were also doing like angel investing before. Why the decision to launch launch a fund and take me through that process? Because I know it, it can be a beast from people I've talked to. Oh, yeah. And everyone and their, you know, sister is, is launching a fund right now or has in yeah. the last, you know, let's say since 2016. So obviously uh, there are a lot of um, small micro funds, nano funds, early stage seed funds um, out there. And um, so in that sense, I don't think we, we stand up. However, um, we do stand out in one uh, significant way, which is that uh, we have, we're very focused on what I call social movements. Um, you know, all the best investments we had made as angels, when we looked back and, you know, for over the past 15 years, uh, 
had this one thing in common. You know, they were all companies that were connected with some larger social movement. You know, Etsy connected with the maker movement, maker, you know, it's a marketplace for crafts or Kickstarter connected with obviously the crowdfunding movement and, and really kind of helped that come about. And so each one of the really great outcomes over the years had this thing in common. And so we thought, well, if we had had a fund that took this as its sole focus, um, you know, we should have been in companies like Airbnb, for instance. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if you think about the next 20 years, going forward, those have been the best outcomes, just, you know, generally speaking, um, if you look at, you know, the Silicon Valley uh, kind of top grossing or most valuable companies. And, and so we thought, okay, what's a better thesis than that? We've already shown that, you know, in our own angel investing history, you know, this is what works. Let's turn it into an explicit constraint um, on our own investing activities. And it turned out that it was something that um, other people around us who we had co-invested with, or I don't know, like I don't know, Jerry Yang, founder of Yahoo, or <laughs> you know, people like that who um, we had worked with in some form recognized as, oh, okay, um, you know, something that uh, we clearly sort of had in our DNA. And so it wasn't hard for us to attract that initial base of LPs, you know, the limited partners that invest into a venture fund. Obviously, as a VC, you're managing not just your own money, but also other people's money. Right. And so, you know, it turned out that, uh, you know, it was also something that we, it was doable for us. Um, we were able to find investors who thought that uh, we kind of exemplified you know, that particular focus in a way that um, they believed, you know, we could pull off. And so that's what we set out to do in 2018. And now it's been almost three years. And that's going to be, you know, the investing period for our first fund. And I think we've now made, we just made our 20th investment um, yesterday. And so Whoa, we're recent. To invest. And so, you know, um, this is a very small fund. It's only, you know, about $13 million. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of our litmus test for whether uh, this works. And I'm getting increasingly confident that it actually is working. And with this fund, with, with you said, you know, you just made another investment recently, a $13 million fund. I mean, how many more investments are you looking to make out of, out of this fund? I think we'll make um, two new bets okay. uh, and then call it a fund. You know, there's some reserves that, but, you know, a small fund like this, that's uh, basically incentivized to um, basically get as much ownership per dollar as it can uh, must sort of lean heavily into the very earliest rounds yeah. right and then it's it's not uh, the I would say traditional Silicon Valley sand hill venture capital business model where you tend to nibble at first and then double down in later rounds in in the companies that seem to be having traction. Uh, this is uh, what at my old employer, True Ventures, um, you know, the founders, Phil Black and John Callahan would call maximizing risk uh, <laughs> because we essentially, our only choice is to going deep early just because we don't have the kinds of reserves that allow us to outcompete larger funds later on. Right. 
there's not a lot of follow on capital the same as the other ones are doing and their whole model is much different it seems like from what the svc is doing and and with you being an early stage fund i mean what is, what has been your your kind of average check size throughout this fund so our check size ranges from on the low end um 250k is kind of a you know on the low end and then i think the largest check initial check we've written is a million and a half we've done a couple of investments in that frame so that it's it's in between that normally yeah that's not to say you know like this is and this is something that i don't know you look at i don't know like a massive fund like founders fund and they will i don't know their one bet will be 100k and then the next one will be 100 million (laughs) and so i think similarly here i think our smallest bet is literally 30k yeah Uh, so sometimes it can be a very small investment into something that obviously we then you know if it's something that we feel uh, is showing signs of promise, we will attempt to invest more into very quickly. Uh, so oftentimes these are very, very fast. We might put in a little bit and then a month later, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll try to put in more money. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's also just a rapid, very rapid cycle where, you know, we also, uh, I think as a part of that, you know, you do tend to skew to look at companies that are growing very fast or developing, if it's not traditional growth in the sense of a growing user base or growing revenue, somehow their products making progress really quickly. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and I think that's also one of the challenges because that means that you may actually uh, pass or not notice something that's just taking a longer time to incubate. With that too, then I'm curious as to what your what your deal flow kind of looks like at this point, how, how that's been going for you. Uh, because I mean, everyone has their own kind of ways of going about it. I'm just curious for you and yes, we see how are you how are you managing that deal flow now? Right. So, well, you know, I think it's important to step back and look at what's happening in the venture early stage venture market. And what's going on is that just because of the influx of capital, and also because I think of a maturation maturation of the the entrepreneurs, um, you have, uh, it's expanding. The notion of what's early stage is expanding in two directions. Both, uh, you know, you're seeing uh, funds move from traditional seed to like, I was on a call last night with a co-investor who was calling it, oh, we focus now on mango seeds, right? So it's these <laughs> bigger seed rounds, right? Yeah. Um, there's actually, it's very lucrative for VCs often to go in that direction when they're successful because, you know, you raise larger funds and you end up um, having more management fees and just more money to play with. You feel like you can, you know, throw, you know, throw around more weight. Um, um, and as a result, you then also become kind of a little bit, maybe even hostage to, your fund size, which now uh, requires you to place bigger bets. And so you have this, I think it's, I would say that's like the general trend um, even in that uh, as more money has come in uh, to the venture funds, they have grown. And as such, the average round sizes, as you know, well, have been, uh, you know, getting bigger. But at the same time, um, you have these micro and even these nano managers, you know, there's fund managers with literally, you know, single digit millions under management, uh, we're investors as LPs uh, personally in some of these. You know, there's uh, I don't know, like Rahul Vora and yeah, yeah. Uh, Rahul's and Todd's uh, fund. I think originally it was supposed to be four million. I think they ended up raising six. So this is an example of a very very small fund, right? Uh, uh, and then, 
but the, you know, some of these actually have been the best performers, like Chris Saka's front fund, uh, yep. lowercase, which I think oh, is only like 6.7 million or something like that, which has just been an outstanding, incredible um, return, right? So um, oftentimes you get the best return multiples as an investor, as a limited partner from these very, very small funds when they're, you know, run by top managers. And so, uh, and what these, when you have these smaller funds and what these small, uh, you know, like us, what we're actually doing is moving even earlier. So yeah. you have funds that are going into not just seed, but pre-seed and not even just pre-seed, but pre-company. Um, some <laughs> are even talking about pre-founder. So it's like, you know, you're investing in something even, if you, even before you have a founder for it. And so, um, and, and we've done some of that. So we tend to skew in that direction rather than the mango seed direction so these just these last if you look at the investments we've made this year uh three out of five are companies that we invested in invested in basically at the moment of founding and had made the investment decision even before the companies had started Jeez. Uh, i think at least in in one case even before the founder had the idea for the company. So, you know, it's like uh, we're trying to get in early just because that's where you, if you have just a little bit of money, then that's where you can get the best bang for buck, right? Um, but it means that you become very, very proactive about spotting trends and, you know, uh, finding the potential founders, maybe even before they realize that they're going to be founders, right? Um, and there's companies like Entrepreneur First, you know, it's a, it's a network of where they try to, you know, they basically pull in experts who are really good at um, mostly scientists working in labs and research. And I don't know, they might be in like, I don't know, developing AI algorithms at some big company, like, I don't know, SAP or whatever. And then they basically convince them to take a break, a sabbatical or whatnot, and uh, try their hand at uh, being a founder, even before they necessarily <laughs> know what kind of company they're building, right? So there's, you know, there's this whole new undergrowth of actors that are sort of wooing who they believe are the most potential founders into startups, even before those founders might realize that's what is their destiny, right? And so we collaborate with them. We, you know, have our ideas of our own. We're entrepreneurs, you know, both Katarina and I are serial entrepreneurs in that we've founded multiple companies and exited them as founders ourselves in our past. So we're operators and we're kind of very familiar with that. So, um, you know, I think we're just also applying that, um, you know, some people talk about growing scar tissue. This isn't scar tissue. This is more like muscle, you know, that as an early stage founder, a repeat founder, you've accumulated that you can then apply um, in this investor kind of role, um, which I don't think is established and traditional. It's kind of new and emerging because investors really didn't used to be that active. They would tend to wait. Um, you would have things like a Y Combinator expecting applications from people who had already decided that they want to start something. You know, yeah. um, this is more about suggesting to someone, have you thought of this? Um, and then waiting to see if they get excited by the idea um, and possibly then saying, great, you know, we'd love to fund you, right? So we do more of that now. That's interesting. And it's like, yeah, you're just, you're seeding the idea in that. You're just basically using Inception uh, for the smart people in your life, it seems like, to get right. them to start companies that you'll then invest yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, kind of like that. Um, it's not always people we even know, but, you know, when you spend a lot of time uh, 
you know, like I'm a sociologist by training, as you know, and so, you know, thinking about social networks and trying to expand your touch points to uh, people who could potentially make something meaningful happen in a space. Like, you know, um, you and I have before talked about, for instance, how in the small town of Bolinas, which is north of San Francisco, yep. this spring in March, when coronavirus was just, you know, the first wave of COVID was just kind of, a, you know, basically taking over the world, right? Um, you know, we started a volunteer effort to test uh, that entire town, right? And so, and it went well, and it was it was complete volunteer work, uh, right? And then after that, um, some of the key people who basically had dropped everything and just volunteered their time to organize the testing, build Airbnb engineers, built the you know the information systems that didn't exist in order to be able to do massive population-wide testing of thousands of people in a matter of just a few days right so yeah uh, then you know like uh you know chris uh the lead engineer from airbnb he he decided to quit his job and do this full-time right andrew the who became the ceo uh you know he had another job at a, another healthcare startup he he quit that in order to do this, right? Tucker, uh, the guy who, or you know, basically organized the entire like setup, found the wedding tents that we're, we were using in order to, you know, just have a place, you know, basically to, um, you know, found the actual testers, the medical professionals who came in. You know, he kind of like organized everything on the ground, right? Uh, so the three of them decided to keep doing that just because you know, a lot of other towns and cities and even state governments heard about this and also wanted to have their populations tested for the coronavirus. And at the time, testing was just getting started and it wasn't available for them. And so they we kind of just, we were just basically overwhelmed by this inbound requests. Can you please, you know, do this for, uh, I don't know, like, uh, you know, you remember the whole um, George Floyd events in, Minneapolis, right? Yeah. Well, Minneapolis uh, turns out had a really great mayor um, who recognized like crap. They didn't know if people were out on the streets, if they were actually going to end up with a massive wave of coronavirus infections as part of those um, civil rights activists uh, basically taking a stand and, you know, basically risk risking it and, and you know, doing what they did on the streets, which I am uh, personally like a tremendous supporter of. So, you know, we, you know, we just went there, right? And yeah. and set up testing tents in Minneapolis uh, with the help of the mayor together with Mayo Clinic and just, you know, tested as many people as we could to, to try to ensure that we were somehow covering for this risk, right? Um, and so, you know, we did stuff like that. And then it turned into a company that's now, you know, generating revenue and has a lot of customers, right? But it didn't originally start out being planned as some kind of for-profit, scalable, you know, massive Silicon Valley business, right? But that's kind of what it's turned into now. And I think that company's, you know, potentially very, very valuable, right? So yeah. it would be something that we would invest in. And so and kind of going a little bit deeper into the, this this diligence process, like you're seeding some of these investments yourselves, the things you're seeing, uh, opportunities, trends, as you mentioned. But what does that diligence process look like for you then at SVC, understanding that you're early stage investing and some of these are just even founders potentially or ideas? Like what does that diligence process look like for the companies you do see? Well, as any 
early stage investor, you can't really diligence in the traditional sense because there's no data there. What right. you're looking at is founder product fit, number one, right? You're, you're looking for a person who you believe, um, you know, has some insight that's almost a secret. They know something other people don't know yet, right? Um, and they're able to then act on that, right? Because they have the skills, the capability, the networks, um, they know the people, like they know the customers, like they, whatever, like the, or they have special access, right? Um, and that's very, very rare, right? But, you know, essentially that's what any early stage investor is looking for. I think the difference here is what, what we're doing is we're like, we could see, right, that there was a social injustice in the sense that, you know, um, personally for me in the town of Bolinas, a firefighter got sick and had all of the symptoms of the coronavirus, yet he couldn't get a test, right? Because at the time, those tests were reserved for people who'd either been to China or had been you know, verified to have been exposed to someone else who had tested positive. And it just didn't feel right, right? And that's yeah. kind of the catalyst, catalyzing moment when you recognize, oh my God, like, you know, you share this moral uh, outrage, really, um, and you want to do something about it. And so we, you know, it's not always like this, but very often, um, you know, you, you, you tend to have, uh, there's some group who feels like, or is very clearly, um, you know, not being treated fairly, right? Who becomes empowered by some entrepreneur stepping on the scene and, you know, addressing the problem head on. And so that's kind of the moment that we look for. And if you think about like these examples I gave early on, you know, they all kind of had the same in common where, you know, it's not even necessarily initially thought of as a company. Um, you know, like you think about an Airbnb or, you know, you think about a Kickstarter or these companies that I just mentioned, even things like Bluebell Coffee, which has been a very successful company, like great outcome for us as, as investors, you know, it's really about, it was, it was about uh, solving these sort of things that in the world of coffee, uh, you know, made it seem like it wasn't right, right? Like yeah. the coffee, you could access this really awesome coffee, you know, there were all this, in, it's like social injustices in the supply chain, all that, right? And then it just catalyzes into a, something that became called third wave coffee, right? So, you know, you just kind of have to spot those, right? And then you try to, you know, it doesn't always work, but sometimes you can pick the right person or you, you just, you know, discover them and then you get to know them. And then, you know, what we can do is we can introduce these uh, tried and tested processes and tools of startup building, right? Um, to those people, um, like in the case of, you know, this COVID testing, the startups called primary diagnostics, um, or, you know, some of these aren't like we invested, um, another one we invested in recently this year is a company called reconnect that actually makes, um, ankle bands that allow you, if you are a, you know, you're on parole or you're waiting for trial, uh, to basically stay at home and not be in jail. Right. Mm. Um, so, you know, this is tracking people, which you can think about, uh, how, you know, worrisome concerning even evil all of that sounds and yet um we have this enormous 
problem in the United States of mass incarceration, right? Yeah. And we know that um, basically allowing people uh, who are subjected to this system to maximize their time with their families um, is good, right? And so this is one of the companies that's addressing that problem, right, with technology. So these are the kinds of, this is the lens through which we look at the world, you know, is kind of what I'm saying. And I think it's very unique. So for a VC, it allows us to see opportunities where others don't. And and with this, too, I mean, that, yeah, I mean, you're looking at early stage. This is the lens. I mean, if you could even just ballpark, I mean, how many deals are you, potential deals are you seeing, companies are you meeting with on a week-to-week basis for people who are thinking about being uh, venture capitalists or just for entrepreneurs who are trying to reach out, understanding how busy venture capitalists are? Like, I'm curious on like, your deal flow, like how many companies you're looking at, like how, how has that kind of gone for you? Well, I think that as for any VC, the, you know, and, and as a repeat founder uh, seeking venture capital myself, I've been in this position multiple times where, you know, I pitch, I, I make a great pitch deck and I, I, you know, I email it to, you know, a venture capitalist, someone who's well known, maybe they're on Twitter or they have a blog, I respect them, you know, and I, I don't hear anything back or, I, I get kind of a lukewarm response um, and it's very disappointing and it helps to kind of turn the table around and look at it from the perspective of that venture capitalist. And why is it that VCs so often, even if it's a good pitch, don't really um, get excited? And the answer is that if you're, if you've got something that has strong growth potential, uh, you're probably not even going to have time to really pitch a VC just because it's so competitive right now yeah. that VCs are seeking you out. Um, and there's angels. There's so many ways that you can access capital. And especially if it's something that's generating revenue early on, you may not actually even need that much capital. In fact, the problem is that some of these end up raising too much and then running into various kinds of issues around, you know, just because they're, they're basically overfunded, right? You think about all these famous, you know, examples of companies that somebody like SoftBank has funded, right? Like yeah. a WAG or, I don't know, um, you know, our associate David um, worked for one of the SoftBank funded companies that really kind of, he, he explained how the culture changed once you had somebody, you know, $150 million in the bank. Yeah. So, you know, so there's these other issues, right? So basically, um, you know, what I would say is, you know, the, we see a lot of deals because of investors send them to us and because we get pitched all the F and time, just mm -hmm. like every other VC. And yes, we do have a process and I've actually drawn out even like a kind of like a mind map over a map of how it works. Um, you know, and it's more messy, obviously, than most VCs would have you think, but it's actually really useful to like look at that and understand it. There's various types of rejections, by the way, like based on the degree of warmth, like how warm or how cold of a rejection we send to somebody. Um, so, you know, you, you send us a cold email and yes, you know, it goes into this funnel, this process through which we, you know, it gets reviewed. You may never hear back from us, but that's a form of a rejection actually. Um, yeah. So we, but the reality is that 50% uh, of our, the investments that we actually end up making come from either our founder network or, uh, you know, basically early angels who are investing, I don't know, like 20K or 10K uh, into a company and they're looking for 
uh, early stage fund to basically come in and lead that very early around. So, so that's kind of, and then the, the other half is, yeah, it's, it's things we seek out basically, you know, it's, it's something that we proactively look for. And I think that's the other thing that distinguishes us is that we have increased that uh, share. Uh, We started out, I think, being more reactive. um, But the challenge there is that if you're incentivized, like we are heavily on carry, um, you know, we're financially independent people because we've been successful entrepreneurs who've sold multiple companies. And so for us, it's, you know, we don't basically need to pay ourselves uh, salaries out of a management fee. We're completely incentivized by our ability for the fund to generate carry, right? So it's okay for us to have a small fund that has very low fees, right? Um, but then it's really, really important for us to actually uh, have a high multiplier return on that fund. Uh, really important, right? Um, yeah, that's where you're, so, that's where you're incentivized. Because I mean, it's for people who aren't familiar, the two and 20 model, like 2% management fee. I mean, if that's why you raise a massive fund, there's obviously more management fee. And it's different, as you sure. said, because you've had, you, you've both been multiple time founders, uh, and had success with that, which kind of changes the dynamics of what you, your incentives are going to be, because now you, you've incentivized for the, the carry, essentially, um, which yeah. is which is interesting that you, you're able to do that. And I, I want to dive into a little bit with the, the, your founder experience for others who are obviously other entrepreneurs, because this could be multiple hours, but obviously we're going to stay on, on track with time. But you've started a couple of companies and sold both of them uh, to large companies. I'm curious, with that experience, what were you looking for from uh, an idea that kind of struck you that you wanted to actually pursue? Because you've had multiple ideas that have been very successful and obviously the idea is not everything it's the execution but even from the idea standpoint from your experience like what were you looking for back then well i think that you know um you either get lucky or you apply some kind of a model uh, a thought model like a common sense you could say i guess but it's funny how many founders actually don't do that and you recognize that there's something that's a massive change in society for like for me as like you know as a sociologist i was working on uh i was excited by social networks and then uh, mobile phones and so like for my both companies were early uh mobile social networks right and so um and that was at the time from you know, basically 1997 to 2007, uh, that, you know, that was where the most value was being created in, you know, uh, early at Nokia and then Apple iPhone and, you know, on Android at Google and so on. So, um, you know, you basically hone in on something like that and then you could say the rising tide lifts are all boats, right? Um, now, if you think about where you really want to be though, is, is you want to be at what, sociologist, French sociologist Bruno Latour calls the obligatory point of passage, right? So which, for instance, could be the iPhone for mobile or the Android operating system, which everyone sort of has to rely on, right? It could be, you know, the, I don't know, like Memcache, for instance, at one point for web development was something that everybody, or PHP or whatever. So, you, you know, you tend to want to go to the root of the what is the enabling thing that's going to allow for the stack to develop like you know sort of on top of you right so um you know again you look for that special insight right and so for like and we think about that a lot right because what you're essentially looking for is like how does this generate like a perpetual 
success machine that just like infinite amounts of people will kind of you're making them succeed in their thing uh, by enabling this one thing that makes everything easier or necessary for them. Right. So you think about, I don't know, like how many people because of Facebook or Twitter have been able to, I don't know, create a following or become an influencer or whatever. Right. So these are the sorts of things that you, you, you want to see in that idea. Right. So um, and you can actually like so this is another thing is like I think the best founders right now are actually building portfolios. They're no longer necessarily focused on one company at a time. They're doing multiple ideas. And I think founders, like really creative people have always done this. You go back and you look at like Da Vinci who famously couldn't finish a project because he was already on to the next one. <laughs> the and next he had one. too many going on in parallel, right? But it's, it's Da Vinci who we all remember as a name from that era, right? We don't remember his competitors who were more diligent and, you know, did everything according to the rules and only worked on one painting at a time, right? So what you want is, and you look at someone like Jack Abrams or, you know, like um, there's a bunch of these founders who, or, you know, whatever, Jack Dorsey, right? Yeah. CEO of both Twitter and Square. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> that wasn't supposed to be allowed, right? And so, I would encourage you, if you're listening to this podcast and you are one of these people, um, to allow yourself the freedom to explicitly do many things at once. Because, um, you know, one of the reasons that VCs have portfolios is that not everything succeeds, right? And as a founder, I don't see it necessarily uh, being detrimental to your success of any one of those companies that you are actually working on simultaneously other parallel ideas, because oftentimes succeed breeds success and you kind of end up, you know, being able to glean insights and then apply them to, you know, across projects. And so this is one of this kind of like, a, I think, um, anathema for a VC to say, because you know, traditionally VCs would want a founder to put all of their eggs in one basket, which is obviously yeah. the basket that they've invested in. <laughs> um, but you know, like it's just, it's just common sense. And so I, I encourage you to um, basically not, uh, it's like, you know, Steve Jobs, right? Said it's like, stay curious, right? Um, and stay hungry. So uh, don't let yourself uh, kill off your own creativity merely because you've raised financing. So I guess what I'd say. Yeah. And it's interesting because there's this level of focus obviously needed to make something succeed. But then when you get ideas and insights from other products you're working on that can then help that main project too. I mean, it's just interesting to think about that and look at that. And if you look at the community of like, like indie hackers and you have these people who are building multiple different projects in different industries and uh, they can succeed that way too. There's not necessarily one path to success as an entrepreneur. And so that's the interesting thing to see as I've done hundred something interviews here of the many paths people take and who have maybe had multiple things going on at the same time. One thing I have to ask about with having multiple companies that you, you've sold, take me through like the first one, for, for instance, you sold to Google in within like a year or so. How did that come about? Right. Well, I worked on what was called iSeries uh, set of, you know, like a internet handset at Nokia um, as the product manager and then recognized that, you know, it wasn't possible for me to build the kind of product there. Uh, you know, it was pre iPhone uh, that, you know, I thought the world needed. Right. Yeah. Um, it's like uh, very much, you know, something that you know, people today would recognize as a smartphone, but at the time, you know, we're living in the world of feature phones. So, um, so I, I 
left and then decided, okay, well, maybe I can build this software because uh, I didn't really have the resources to continue building the hardware that we were building inside of Nokia. Uh, so, you know, just focused essentially on turning it into software that ran on the best hardware at the time, which was the Nokia Series 60, if you can believe this uh, Symbian operating system, which was obviously terrible. But, um, you know, what happened then was we did ship uh, an app as it would now be called at the time, you know, apps as app as a concept didn't really exist. Um, it was, you know, essentially took over, it hacked the phone, took over the address book of these Nokia phones and then turned it into something that today would really resemble, everyone would be completely familiar with it. Um, something that looks like a Twitter or a Facebook news feed where, you know, you can see uh, short updates from your friends. Uh, you can post pictures. Et cetera, et cetera, right? Links. Uh, and so it turned it into what was, you know, many people at the time called a social address book. And somebody came up with the word microblogging because these updates were constrained by uh, many other people didn't have um, series, expensive Series 60 phones at the time, especially in the US where you really couldn't even access them. So they were constrained with SMS. So, you know, you could send uh, out what would now be called a tweet um, about what we just called posts. Uh, and then, you know, they could go to other people who are following you even uh, if they didn't have Series 60 phones, they would receive it as an SMS. And so these were these very short posts, right? So, you know, this at the time all uh, was really weird and odd and new because people weren't used to being able to communicate like this on phones, yeah. especially post things publicly, right? Uh, there was blogging. These were supposed to be these long blog posts that you labored on for hours or days and then posted, you know, maybe two or three times a week on your blog, right? But nobody really thought about them as something that were really just constrained to the length of a text message, right? Just kind of many people really laughed at it and, you know, thought it was kind of inane and stupid. Um, but um, somebody, one person noticed it and thought this was great. And it was this guy at uh, Google, right? Who, uh, and what we didn't know at the time uh, that Google was already working on Android, uh, Andy yeah. Rubin's project there, right? So um, then, you know, Google approaches actually tried, offered to acquire our company already, I think like three weeks after we launched the app. And, <laughs> um, and we said no, because, you know, obviously we wanted to build our company. Yeah. But then they just kept uh, hammering at it. And I think what really um, turned us over to them was when they finally showed up here in Finland, uh, where I am right now, incidentally, uh, which is where I'm from, where we were building this company at the time, which is where Nokia was based, um, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s. And so, and, and, and showed us an early prototype of Android. And immediately I could tell, okay, uh, this is going to take over the world, right? Because, yeah. you know, it's got the power of Google, it's got the best engineers, the operating system was already really, really slick. Um, they didn't have good hardware. In fact, they had these really crappy, horrible, you know, uh, plastic <laughs> hardware devices that weren't really even phones that kind of looked like Blackberries. But, you know, eventually you can see like, oh, okay, it'll be hardware agnostic. You'll have, you know, other handset manufacturers building the hardware in which this operating system runs. So I thought, okay, because our biggest challenge at the time was we were competing against Twitter and Facebook and we were doing fine against Twitter, which at the time was struggling with the fail whale, if you recall, if you're old enough. <laughs> you, know, the, you know, Twitter was having trouble scaling, essentially. You know, yeah. the engineering was, you know, with all due respect to the great engineers, Rabble and 
Jack and you know everyone else who worked at Twitter at the time was a small team, uh, but they were really struggling with the scaling. And so, um, but Facebook was a true, true, um, a very, very hard uh, from this in 2005, six, whatever, like earlier. You could see that this company was gonna be the one, right? So, yeah. um, so we thought, okay, um, if we you know, become embedded into the Android operating system, then our, we're going to have an enormous distribution leverage. And Larry Page at the time correctly assumed that the only way you could really uh, gain an edge on Facebook and social was by doing something that was uh, natively mobile, because at the time, Facebook only existed on the desktop. And so, um, but, you know, through the various other, uh, you know, twists and turns, uh, you know, Android actually never ended up shipping with these social features built in, even though uh, we did get acquired and uh, built them into it. But then the operators and uh, uh, who, you know, Google was struggling to get distribution deals with uh, rejected it because they freaked out. They, at the time, the mobile operators thought that they should control all the so-called content. Mm. And the idea that you could log into a, a phone with your Google account uh, you know, and enable these services that they had no control over uh, completely freaked them out. <laughs> Obviously, what was needed was for Steve Jobs to, you know, be Steve Jobs and just force AT&T to agree to do it. Uh, yeah. And when he launched the iPhone, that's what happened. And then, you know, the rest is history. But, you know, this was sort of, uh, this was still pre-launch of iPhone, essentially. The, yeah, that that what a different time too. I mean, this is like two thousand and two thousand seven or so. You get acquired uh, two thousand six. It starts based on just looking at LinkedIn and everything. But um, and then you spend time at Google. You start another company that also gets acquired. Uh, was that experience uh, a, a completely different experience when you got acquired by by Groupon within your second startup? I mean, take me through that for yeah. a second. Yeah, yeah. So I worked at Google. So long story short, I worked at Google for two years you know, basically until I fully vested and, you know, um, made all, you know, the money from the acquisition that was backloaded, um, watched the whole uh, incredible project of a social, like mobile operating system, Android, go to hell um, and turned into this bastardized version um, that eventually shipped as Google Plus sort of separate from the Android OS and it was just destined to fail. Um, and, you know, very disillusioned, left Google um, and, you know, decided, okay, well, um, this time, obviously, I'm going to start a new company. And uh, at the time, you know, I was still interested in mobile social ne- networking. And uh, it was like the time of Foursquare, if you remember. So yeah, um, yep. the, the company that uh, I built was called Ditto, and it was a mobile social recommendation system that would sort of allow you to um, very quickly, you know, uh, I would, you know, he, you know, just basically by tap of a button, say, "Oh, I'm I'm heading out to eat, or uh, uh, I'm gonna watch a movie." But the idea was, you don't really know where to go yet, uh, which restaurant or cafe or bar or movie you want to see or whatever. So, and then it, what it did very quickly was it would route it to a few people, other people, humans, users on the system that. Uh, it matched as being the most likely to be able to give you a good recommendation on the fly. And then, you know, they would respond and say, 
if they responded very quickly, like basically within a minute, uh, and you approved, you said thanks, like it's something that you actually thought was useful, then they would get points on the system and kind of you know level up. So it was this thing. Uh, there was another company actually called Artwork that Google acquired very uh, soon after Jaiku that was doing something very similar by uh, um, Max Ventilla, who ended up founding Alt School. And um, anyway, so there's just kind of this idea, and and, and parts of these were actually you know talked to. Uh, uh, Dennis Crowley was an old friend of mine um, uh, about you know whether Foursquare should go in this direction as well. But at the time, they were thinking of it more as like a check-in game. Uh, so um, built that, and so it was this early company that was just starting to grow, um, basically enabling people to make decisions about uh, where to go out. Uh, I would say in the city was really kind of the young young user base for what it was for. At the time, in 2010, the fastest growing company in the world was Groupon. Right, Groupon was sort of taking everyone by storm in yeah. Silicon Valley and also um, increasingly abroad. Uh, and uh, they were increasingly, again, it was something that started out being an email and a website and then uh, very quickly realized that all of their business was essentially in mobile and all of the margin. Uh, and they they acquired Ditto because, uh, you know, they recognized that we were building something interesting that they could they could basically profit from. And so very quickly then uh, through that acquisition, I ended up at Groupon and then uh, worked there with, um, at the time Groupon was run by the founder, Andrew Mason, uh, and, you know, essentially became great friends with him, still have a huge respect for Andrew and thinks he's just uh, possibly the strangest uh, Silicon Valley uh, founder and CEO of all time <laughs> and also one of the most awesome. Certainly, um, he's now got this uh, really cool company called uh, Descript, actually, which is a podcasting oh, tool. I've used it. Yeah, yeah. There you go. So that's great. So yeah, he's a, yeah. He's a sound engineer, actually, by origin. That's kind of his background. So wow. it's very, uh, you know, kind of. Anyway, so you know, so uh, you know, is is this other uh, then other things happen at Groupon, right? Irrespective of, I wasn't working on deals. I was, you know, ended up. Uh, uh, whatever, heading product for, uh, you know, we we're building a point of sale at the time. Uh, I actually was convinced that Foursquare should have um, either acquired Square or uh, built its own Square competitor to basically own both the client on the consumer's handset as well as the point of sale. The iPad point of sales were just kind of becoming a thing. It was, you know, not even possible to do that early on. And so, um, you know, kind of, I was very interested in this as kind of like a new disruptive way of uh, doing all these awesome things to enable local merchants to uh, basically not get wiped out by Amazon, uh, and but to grow their own sort of user bases and follower bases on, uh, you know, in, in on the internet uh, while uh, remaining, you know, local small businesses. And Yuri, we could obviously chat for a long time because there's so much to dig into with, with your also where it boosted. There's so many places, things that I want to be respectful of your time yeah. though, but where can people go to, to reach out if they have a startup, if they do want to, you know, get in touch, where's the best way, obviously warm intro, but where besides. Um, yeah. So if you want to get in touch with me, I think the best way to do that is either, um, at me on Twitter, which is at Yuri, it's spelled J Y R I at Yuri or email partners at yes.vc, partners at yes.vc, especially if you want to pitch. Perfect. I'll be sure to link that up in the show notes as well. Yuri, thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you. This is great.
This episode is brought to you by Hawk Media, a full-service outsourced CMO based in Santa Monica, California, providing guidance, planning, and execution to grow brands of all sizes, industries, and business models. Hawk Media is recognized by Inc. as one of the fastest-growing marketing consultancies, and their collaborative process, a la carte offering, and month-to-month fee structure give clients the flexibility they need to boost digital revenues and marketing ROI. Hawk Media, the company, has serviced over 1,500 brands of all sizes, ranging from startups like Tomorrow Melon, SIO Beauty, and Bottle Keeper, to household names like Red Bull, Verizon Wireless, and Alibaba. And also, I had the founder and CEO of Hawk Media, Eric Huberman, on the podcast in episode number 23, if you want to take a listen. And to get a free consultation, head on over to hawkmedia.com, and be sure to mention Just Go Grind. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. The Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter, comes out every single Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. This is filled with tips, tools, and strategies for growing your business. If you want to know how to launch a business, how to grow it, how to get it off the ground, find employees, all these different things. There's a few tips, tools, and strategies every single week I deliver right to you justgrind.com slash newsletter. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you in the next episode.